Hey, welcome to the Crosspoint Church Podcast. I'm Rob Chartrand, the lead pastor of the church. We're a church that's for the city in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and are passionate about helping people find their way back to God. Hey, if you're new, I'll have a bit to say at the end of the podcast, but in the meantime, let's listen to this Sunday's message. Hey, good morning, everyone. Happy Family Day weekend. Um... Is if you did not get the news, we uh, postponed our love story series by one week. And uh, the reason why we chose to do that, a number of reasons. Uh, first of all, we have a parent workshop happening upstairs. So there are a number of us that aren't even in the room here. We're on the second level. Um, also, it's family day weekend. Lots of families away. There's a rash of sickness going through. Little Ebola monkeys are spreading their germs all over. And kids are sick, which means families are sick. Uh, and of course, a bunch of our young adults were away to retreat. So we thought, nah, it's not the best planning ever. So we moved it off until next weekend. And that's okay, because uh, I really felt that uh, this weekend I wanted to share uh, something else with you that's uh, kind of coming out of uh, my spiritual retreat. I took a, I took a couple weeks holidays off uh, last week and the week before. Um, and that included a three-day spiritual retreat. I try and do this once or twice a year. I get away, I lock myself in a room, a hotel room, and I just spend time uh, in prayer, reading God's word, uh, doing a lot of reflecting, a lot of journaling. I try and go for hikes, you know, uh, but really I just allow, the God, allow God to do some soul work in me. And so um, what I'm talking about this morning is really talking to me, and you can pay attention if you want. Uh, I hope it means something to you. Uh, anyway, let me just talk about the series next week uh, when we do launch. This is going to be a great series, and it's going to be a great series to bring a friend on the arm. Uh, we're going to learn a lot as we dive into the Song of Solomon together and uh, learn about uh, all sorts of things about relationships. And uh, no matter where you're at, what your relationship status is, okay, whether you're single, whether you're married, where you're dating, whether you're engaged, whatever it is, okay, there is going to be something in this series for you because the principles that we are talking about are about relationships, and those relationships uh, principles apply in all spheres. So I hope that you won't tune out uh, for this series, but that you'll join us, and as well that you'll just come be with us as family, as a church community. So anyway, I'm looking forward to that next weekend, and I hope you are too. Would you do something? Would you think about something? Would you prayerfully think about, hey, who could I come uh, who can I invite to come to Crosspoint to take part in this series who could really benefit from what we're talking about? Um, and so pray for eyes wide open, hearts wide open, uh, and that God would just put someone on your heart to, uh, to bring along with you uh, as we start the new series. But uh, enough of that. Uh, let's get into to what I want to talk to you today about. Uh, if you do have bulletin notes, I encourage you to pull those out because that will help you track with where we are going. Um, but... Uh, Yes, that's what we are talking about today. Uh, I want to talk to you today about the joy of diminishing. And this is all going to make sense when we get further along into the message. Uh, but I want to talk to you about the joy of diminishing. So if you do have a Bible or a digital version of a Bible, I'm going to read a text that passes a scripture from John chapter 3. And uh, starting at verse 22, you can follow along on screen in the bulletins, but it's always nice to have your own Bible in front of you. So let let me start by reading from John chapter 3, verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside, where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now, John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. 
Now, an argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. And they came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. And to this John replied, a person can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him, and he's full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. And that joy is mine, and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. This is the word of God. Can we pray together? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word revealed to us, and thank you that you have something to say to each and every one of us uh, this morning in some way. And we just open up our hearts uh, to you, and we say, Holy Spirit, would you take the word of God, and would you speak to our hearts? Uh, Would you um, give us surrendered lives under your word, that we're willing to uh, follow your lead in whatever way you're directing us this morning? And so, God, we give this uh, time to you. Lord, I submit myself to you, and I ask that you you would give me the words to say uh, in the right way, in the right moment. And we commit this to you now in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Well, I want to talk about this story, but I I really believe that if you're really going to understand this story, you have to understand where it fits in a larger story, okay? And the larger story I'm referring to is more specifically John the Baptist's life. Uh, Typically, you can understand John the Baptist's whole life in five different parts. And I want to walk through each of those parts really quickly this morning in order for us to better understand what this story is really talking about. So uh, the five parts, I put them up on screen here. They are promise, rising fame, diminishing, doubting, and death. So let me first begin with talking about promise. Uh, John the Baptist was really born into promise. He was no ordinary baby. You might remember some of the stories uh, of him. The the angel Gabriel appeared to his father, Zechariah, who was a priest, and and he announced that this was not going to be any ordinary baby. He was going to be a great man. Many people would be brought back to the Lord through him. He would would prepare God's people for the coming Messiah, right? And there were all sorts of uh, interesting uh, incidents around the birth of John so that People, when they heard about them, were filled with awe. As a matter of fact, news about John's life, even as a baby, like on his name day, began to spread throughout the whole Judean countryside. People would, would kind of whisper in the shadows, and they would ask themselves the question, what kind of man is he going to turn out to be? And then, and then in Luke's gospel, it says that John grew, he became strong in spirit, and he lived in the desert until he appeared publicly to Israel. So the beginning of John's story is this this story of promise. Who is this guy going to be, ultimately? Well, we don't hear much about John until we move into the next section of his life, which is the time of rising fame. So it's not until his 30s that John appears again on the scene, and he comes out of the desert. And it says, as an adult, the word of the Lord came to John while he was in the desert. Okay, so he emerged on the scene. He was preaching to the countryside. He was preaching this baptism of, of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. So essentially, he was, he was proclaiming the good news to all of his people, to all the other Jews. He was telling them, hey, listen, the Savior is coming. The Messiah that you've all been waiting for, he is coming. So you guys, you have to get ready. Turn away from your broken, destructive lives and move towards life 
In other words, repent of your sins, turn away from destruction, and move towards wholeness. Turn away, get ready, get your house in order, because the king is coming. And that was, that was John's message. And, and part of that message included baptism. That's why he's called John the Baptist, because he baptized people for the repentance of their sin. It signified their turning away from their old lives and, and turning toward their new lives. Now, uh, the, the great thing about John the Baptist is he wasn't your typical uh, uh, poster boy or pageant queen, right? He, he, John ha- kind of had this uh, anti-establishment look about him. If you remember the stories, I mean, he had camel hair clothes, large leather belt. Uh, he lived off of locusts and wild honey. You know, I imagine if John was in here this morning preaching, he'd like come in and he'd start talking, he'd bite the head off of a grasshopper, <laughs> chew it, right? And he'd just keep on preaching. Uh, and that's interesting when you consider John's history. John was actually part of the lineage of the priests. His, his mom and his dad, they were both part of the, they were the direct descendants of Aaron. So John could have grown up and become a priest, but instead he he scorned his priestly garments and he chose instead to dress himself as a prophet. And that's really what he was because the word of the Lord did come to John. And we find out later that Jesus would later affirm John the Baptist as a prophet. So during this time, in spite of his his bed head, bad fashion sense, and bug breath, Mark 1.5 says this about him. It says that the whole Judean countryside and all the people in Jerusalem went out to see him. So John the Baptist was like speaking the truth to people, telling them to turn away from their sins, turn away to God, and yet people were coming in droves to be baptized by him in the Jordan River. And what's interesting is that the more he spoke the truth, the more people came. And so you have this interesting part of his story where there's just this increasing followership, this, this rise to fame. John, in fact, was so popular that the religious leaders were afraid to say anything against him. Even Herod was afraid to say anything against him, lest the people in the region would revolt. Okay, so that's the kind of notoriety that he had. Now, I want to jump to the middle, uh, sorry, uh, then something happened, okay, uh, and this is where we get to the middle part of the story, the, the diminishing part of the story. There's a point in John's story where his popularity began to diminish. And that moment in time happened when he met Jesus face-to-face as an adult. Jesus came to be baptized by John in the Jordan River. And this is perhaps the, the hinge on which today's story turns. When John baptized Jesus... He saw the Spirit of God descend on Jesus, and he knew in that moment that when the Spirit of God came on Jesus, that this Jesus was the Son of God, that this Jesus was the Messiah, the one he had been waiting for, his journey was complete, the one he had prepared everybody to meet had actually shown up on the scene. And the reason why he knew that is that God said to him, listen, when the Spirit of God descends on this man, that will be the sign the sign that he is the Messiah. And so John baptized Jesus in the Jordan. Jesus came out of the water. Holy Spirit came on him. John knew from that moment that his mission was pretty much complete. And so from that moment, after that baptism, a shift began to happen. Subtle at first, but then very strong, is the followers of John started leaving John and began following after Jesus. And a lot of this was, much, uh, uh, was actually encouraged by John himself. John himself was actually starting to say, no, no, hey, don't follow me. There's somebody else that you need to follow. So that's the, that's the third part of the story. Now, the next part of the story, I'm going to go through these really, really quickly, is the part of the stories of doubting and dying. Uh, John was <clears throat> put in prison by Herod eventually because he was speaking out against Herod's marriage uh, to Herodias, who happened to be the ex-wife of Herod's 
brother Philip. Uh, and so Herod, because of that, he put John in prison. Uh, but Herod was afraid to touch John. He didn't want to do anything to John. He was afraid of him. And he knew he was a righteous man. And he knew that if he did something to John, the people might revolt. So Herod's like, hands off. But I'm going to keep him in prison. Now, this time in prison was actually a very dark night of the soul for John. And you, and you read about this in the Gospels. There was, it was a time of doubt. It was a time of wondering. Um, he asked the question of Jesus. He sent some people to talk to Jesus, and he asked the question, are you the one to come, or should we expect somebody else? And the reason why he had doubts was Jesus wasn't doing exactly everything that John thought the Messiah should be doing, and he wasn't doing it as quickly as he thought the Messiah should be doing it. So this was a season of real doubt for John while he was in prison. And then, of course, in the final part of the story is John's story of, of dying. And in this part of the story, um, John is beheaded. Herodias, uh, who is the wife of Herod, plotted with her daughter to convince Herod to behead John. Herod didn't really want to, but he got trapped by his own words. And so at the end of the story, John is decapitated, and his head is presented to the evil and wicked Herodias on a platter. Now, this is an interesting story, because... Think about where the story began with this great promise and the tragic ending that happened uh, in, in the end. Now, what I want to do today is I want to jump back into the middle of the story. And I want to talk about this time in the story of diminishing. The time between Jesus' baptism and Jesus' imprisonment. And what's interesting about Jesus' imprisonment is Jesus, uh, uh, John's imprisonment, sorry, what's interesting about John's imprisonment is Jesus' public ministry didn't actually start until John got put in prison. That was a significant moment in time in the life of John and in the life of Jesus. When John got locked up, Jesus went forth and began proclaiming the good news. Jesus went forth and started uh, performing miracles. But it didn't happen until that. So what we're looking at today is a moment in time between the baptism and between the imprisonment of John. Um, John is losing followers, and this is where we find today's story. In the middle, in the time of diminishing. And it's during this time of diminishing that one of John's followers, one, someone who knows him, kind of pipes up and he says this. He says, hey, Rabbi, now I'm not sure if you've noticed, but you're kind of losing some followers here. And what's weird is they're leaving you and they're following that other guy. Okay, and, and, and you know, the guy that you endorsed the other day, the, the, the guy that you said, you know, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, that guy that you said, uh, you know, the, he's not going to baptize you with water, but he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, that guy. They're leaving you and they're following and heading over his way. And when you read between the lines of the text, what he seems to be insinuating is this. He says, teacher, aren't you bothered by this? I mean, aren't you just a little bit concerned? I mean, doesn't, doesn't it get under your skin a little? You're losing your fan base. You're taking a dip in the polls. This Jesus guy, he's getting more likes. He's getting more retweets. He's getting more visits on his website, right? His platform is expanding. But John, yours is, yours is diminishing. Diminishing. Being forgotten. Overlooked. Abandoned. Fading away into obscurity. How many of you like diminishing? Nobody likes diminishing, unless, of course, you're on a diet plan, right? <laughs> and yet John, in the story, as we read it, he just kind of takes it in stride. And as a matter of fact, while John is diminishing, he makes this really profound statement. He says this. He says, that joy is mine and it is complete. 
And, and that's why in Scripture, in all of Scripture, John is one of my heroes. And in a day of posturing, of platform building, of selfies and Snapchat, I think John has something to teach us. That while our world is trying so hard to get noticed, John is okay with fading away into the background. And he's able to do it with joy. With joy. And perhaps the key to happiness isn't being noticed or liked or followed or admired. Perhaps the key to joy is found in diminishing. Diminishing. So I just want to dive into different parts of what John said in the story today. And I think as we look at that, I think we can discover just a few clues to lasting joy. And I'd just like to share them with you this morning. Um, well, here's the first clue to lasting joy. Lasting joy comes, from, comes when you know who you are not. When you know who you are not. Notice what John said. He, he's very, very clear. He said, I am not the Messiah. Right? So there's, it's interesting. Whenever people press John, because they ask him this question a lot. Who are you? Hello? What's your story? And they asked him if he was the Messiah. Every time, he would just blatantly deny it. He'd say, no way. He'd say things like this. He says, listen, there is one more powerful than I who's coming. I mean, he is so important. I'm not even worthy to stoop down and tie his shoelaces. I baptize you with water, but this guy, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. I can't, I can't even do what this guy does. John knew that he was not the Messiah. He was not the center of the universe. He was not the axis upon which all human life revolved. He knew it. You know, there's the interesting uh, uh, story about this psychologist. His name is Milton Rockich. And he wrote this fascinating book called The Three Christs of Ypsilanti. And the story is about these three men, Leon, Joseph, and Clyde, who each had messianic delusions. They, they actually literally believed that they were the reincarnation of Jesus Christ. And so, as a psychologist, he, of course, diagnosed them with a psychological delusional disorder, right? And the book was about his three-year attempt to try and convince these guys, okay, the two-year attempt, sorry, to try and convince these men to face the truth about themselves, that they, in fact, are not the Messiah, all right? Now, one day, Rokichi decided he was going to do an experiment. He says, you know what? I think I know. I got the solution to this problem. I'm going to take these three messiahs, and I'm going to put, the, put their lives together. I'm going to put them in the same group together. So they had to eat together at a meal every single day. They, they boarded in the same room together. They all shared the same job together. They all did the same work. And he was hoping that, um, that if they hung out with these other messiahs, it would help diminish their delusion. Right? Because there can't be three messiahs in the same room. Um, now, John Ortberg, in his book, uh, The Life You've Always Wanted, he, he kind of describes one of their conversations, which I found fascinating. Here's what he says. He, he says, in, in group time, one of the men would claim something like this. He'd kind of stand up in group time, and he'd say, hey, I'm the messiah, the son of God. I'm on a mission. I was sent to save the earth. And Rokich would then just very calmly ask him the question, well, how do you know this? 
And then, of course, the man would reply, and he'd say, well, God told me. But then, of course, another one of the statements, one of the patients would stand up, and he'd make this statement, he says, I never told you any such thing, okay? So this is the type of conversation that was happening in group time. And, of course, imagine, it was very, very frustrating, a frustrating challenge that Rokich would face every single day in a room filled with messiahs. Imagine having to rule a world filled with messiahs. You see, because the truth is, the truth is that most of us suffer from a similar Messiah complex. While we may not believe that we are Jesus Christ reincarnated, we sometimes suffer from the mild delusion that we are at the center of the universe and that the world revolves around us. And, and this solution, this, this delusion sometimes reveals itself in the strangest of circumstances, like when we complain our latte isn't as hot as we think it should be, and we go off on the barista, right? Or when we yell at cars and say things that our kids would be ashamed of because they're not driving as fast as we think we should in our lane. This Messiah complex, it's interesting because it is, in fact, the, the oldest sin in the Bible. It, it is, it, we've been trying to take God's place ever since Eden. What was the temptation in, in, in the book of Genesis? The temptation was to take the forbidden fruit and that by doing so, we would become like God. So this Messiah tendency, it's at the root of every stupid, wrong, broken, hurtful thing that we do to each other. It's at the center of it all. And yet, it's interesting. We, we try and play God all the time. I find this myself. You know, like when we try to control everything or everyone around us, like our kids, or our friends. You know, when we subtly posture ourselves to try and gain people's praise and, and adoration. Or when we withhold forgiveness from people who make mistakes. Or when we withhold forgiveness from ourselves when we make mistakes. And yet, and yet, if we're really honest with ourselves, we have to agree that each and every one of us, we make pretty lousy gods. You know, can we agree on that this morning? Well, turn to the person beside you and just say, you would make a terrible God. Go ahead. Let them know. <laughs> you see, because I'm a, I'm a pretty good God as long as the world is small and nobody's watching. But please, please, please do not put me in control of the world. Because if I am God and you put me in control of the world, I, I will blow this thing up. Okay? I'm a terrible God. I can't even manage my own life, let alone the cosmos, right? And yet John understood this. John understood that complete joy, if you want to begin to experience complete and lasting joy in your life, it means understanding who you are not. John was not the Messiah. Jesus was the Messiah. And he could let go of trying to control the world. He could let go of trying to save the world. And he could just let Jesus do what Jesus is supposed to do. John knew who he wasn't. He knew who he wasn't. Well, let's look at the second clue. The second clue to, to lasting joy is it's when you know who you are. When you know who you are. See, John understood who he wasn't, but he also understood who he was. He understood that God had given him a very specific calling. He knew that he was created for a very specific purpose. His unique calling was just to prepare the way for the Messiah. John was the voice calling in the wilderness, the herald for the coming king. He was the appetizer before the main course. He was the trailer before the actual movie. He had a part to play, and he played that part to the best of his ability, and he wore his role well. He was comfortable in his own skin. That was John. Now, 
You, you might be f- familiar with the story of David and Goliath. You know that story, right? Pretty, pretty common story. Before t- David went out to fight Goliath, he first spent some time meeting with King Saul in King Saul's private chambers. You can read about it in 1 Kings chapter 17. And Saul wanted David to have the greatest advantage in the fight. So what did Saul do? He brought David in and he put on his tunic and gave it to David. And then he took his armor and gave it to David, complete with helmet and complete with sword, okay? But it's interesting, as the story goes, David had all of this uh, defensive wear on him and he walked around the room. And the more he walked around the room, he kind of thought, nah, this doesn't fit. You know, it's, this is designed for Saul. It's not designed for David. And he realized that it would become so cumbersome for him, he wouldn't actually be able to fight because he wasn't comfortable in Saul's armor. So David very graciously declined, and he took off the armor, and he set out with the clothes on his back, with a staff, with a sling, and with five smooth stones. And he went out and he slayed a giant. I wonder how many of us go through life trying to wear somebody else's armor. Because we're, somehow we're, we're not comfortable in our own skin. So, so we try and be somebody that we're not. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I've discovered that when I try and be somebody that I'm not, it leads to more frustration than joy. You ever try to be someone you're not? You know, I ever wish you had the body of Dwayne the Rock Johnson, right? Or, or the beauty of Scarlett Johansson or Beyonce, or maybe just the, like the Betty Crocker skills of the super mom who somehow finds time to make, bake every night for every school project while working full time and keeping a super fit body. You know who I'm talking about, that mom, right? Yeah, you hate that mom. Yeah, right. Uh. <laughs> Ever wish that you could sing like so-and-so, speak like so-and-so, get grades like so-and-so, yeah, play guitar like so-and-so? Ever wished you were someone else? Ever tried to be someone else? How'd that work out for you? Joy? I think maybe we need to learn from David and we need to stop wearing Saul's armor. Maybe we just need to be comfortable in our own skin. Stop trying to be someone we're not and just be who God made us to be. Did you know this morning that you you were uniquely designed by God? You are fearfully and wonderfully made. God wove you together. He knit you together in your mother's womb. God has mapped out all the days of your life. You are no accident. God has given you a unique mind. He's given you a unique body. He has imbued you with special gifts and talents. He has orchestrated all the experiences in your life that have molded you and shaped you to be who you are. And he has burned passions in your heart. And he's placed a calling on your life. It's not somebody else's calling. It's your calling. It's your armor. And you will experience joy in this life when you discover who God has made you to be and when you step into that role. And this is just what John had encountered. Notice he said this. He says, a person can only receive what is given them from heaven. John knew what God had given him from heaven, and he received his calling gladly. And then he said this, he said, the joy is mine. Are you willing to receive what God has given you from heaven? Whatever it is, whatever form it takes, no matter what your lot in life, are you willing to receive it from God? Because here's the thing, if you won't receive it, if you keep looking at what somebody else has, it's only going to lead to frustration, and it's only going to lead to heartache. 
John said, you know, if you're the best man at the wedding, you shouldn't be pining for the bride, right? Because the bride belongs to the groom. The bride doesn't belong to you. Instead, you should be happy for the groom because he gets to marry the bride. John is the best man in the story. Jesus is the groom. The bride in the story is the calling to be a Messiah. John was saying just seeing Jesus step into that role was just sheer delight. It was a sheer delight for him. Listen, when you know who you aren't and when you know who you are, it leads to joy. So let me ask you this this morning. Are you willing to receive what God has for you, no matter what it is? You see, sometimes I wonder if some of us have chosen not to pursue God's calling in our lives. And I don't, I don't know why that is. Maybe it's because we're, we're afraid or we're distracted. Maybe, maybe it's because we're wounded. But for some reason, some of us have settled for less. You've stopped at the borders of the promised land. You've pitched your tent. And you said, hey, you know what? That's close enough. You've, you've become okay with getting by or with mediocrity or with the status quo. And meanwhile, you're whittling your days away doing idle things and you're missing out on the joy and the adventure that comes in following God in faithfulness and in obedience and in trust. Can I encourage you today? Find out who God has made you to be and go after it. Others might be responsible for what has happened to you in your past, but only you are responsible for what is going to happen to you in your future. Take hold of the God-given calling on your life. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, mind has not conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. Take hold of it, of who you are. Well, here's the third clue, the last clue. It's when you know who it's for. John said this. He said, he, Jesus, must become greater. I must become less. And the reason why John ultimately experienced joy is because he was tapping into his reason for being. You see, each and every one of us, every single human being, we were all created for one primary reason. Not all these secondary reasons, but one primary reason. Ultimately, we were all created for the glory of God. You know, Paul, Paul captures this in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 21. He says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. The ultimate purpose for which you were created was to bring glory to God, to make his name great, to see him increase, even if it means that you might decrease. But when you, when you go against the grain of your purpose, what happens is you start to get slivers. But if you go... Uh, and you align yourself in your heart and in your life with who you were designed to be with your higher purpose, the result at the end of the day is joy and delight. So you could choose slivers or you could choose joy and delight. Now, to be completely honest, I, I, I think about John's story and I try to imagine myself in, in that story. And, and I think if I was in John's shoes, I might struggle a little bit. I really do. Because it, it wouldn't have been easy stepping back. I'm sure that people thanked John. I think, I'm sure that they applauded him. You know, I'm sure they gave him slaps on the backs, fist bumps, high fives, attaboys, right? It's like, all right, 350 people dunked underwater today. John, well done. High fives, right? It's like, oh, yeah, you, what, what is it? You, you, you telling off the Pharisees, you know, brood of vipers? That's awesome. Let's write that down, right? Good job, John. I can imagine that. Uh, diminishing would be difficult. And, and the interesting thing about John's story is that he just he stepped back. He disappeared into obscurity. 
and he did it with grace and with joy. I think such an act is, is almost unheard of in our day of posturing and platforms. The heroes of our times have become those who, are, who have become really, really good at putting the best versions of themselves forward in a kind of a, a veneer of reality, whereas beneath the surface might not necessarily be so. Um, I wonder if any of you have ever heard of Esena O'Neill. Esena O'Neill. Um, <clears throat> a couple of years ago, Esena O'Neill, she's an Australian, uh, she became uh, a top Instagram star at just 18 years of age. Her, her, her Instagram fame just kind of skyrocketed over a period of two years. She could actually build an entire career around her videos and her pictures. Some of them were uh, a, little, um, a little naughty, okay? Uh, but she possessed this internet world dominance in just two years of time. She had over 500,000 Instagram followers, 250,000 people followed her YouTube account. Her platform was so huge, she's, like I said, she could support herself financially, and people were going after her, asking her just to become a professional model. Uh, different cities were trying to recruit her for, for different modeling uh, opportunities. Well, after a couple of years of posting, at the age of 18, Isena decided she was calling it quits. And just like that, like in an instant, she announced to the world that her grow and her growing fan base that she's just done. And she took all of her internet accounts, she wiped them, and they were done uh, overnight. And later she revealed that her increasing fame was making her unhappy. She was becoming lost in it, constantly seeking people's approval. She said that I, I had become addicted to being liked, and she was becoming less authentic, more miserable. And, and I think we put up on the screen some of the things that, uh, that she said. It's cut off a little bit on the left, but I'll just read it for you. She said this. She said, I fell in love with this idea that I could be of value to other people. It was a snowballing addiction to be liked by others. Yeah, 16-year-old Asana would have been like, girl, you have the dream life. So why did I feel so lost, lonely, and miserable? Social media had become my sole identity. I didn't even know who I was without it. I can't tell you how free I feel without social media. Never again will I let a number define me. It suffocated me. Not because I had 500,000 followers. I felt the same as a young girl. I would just spend hours looking at everyone else's perfect lives, and I strive to make mine look just as good. Guess I succeeded. It's totally stupid. Now, that's not a hit against social media users. I, I do, in fact, use it. But I think we can learn that in terms of building her platform, in terms of increasing, Asena felt like she was winning. Everything was up and to the right. But after two years, she discovered that increasing doesn't necessarily mean increasing. Asena reminds us of something that I think most of us know all too well. We are not wired to be the center of the universe. We weren't made for ego-inflating self-advancement. We are not messiahs who stand on platforms. We were made to give the platform over to someone else, someone far greater, someone far more worthy. It is a weight for any of us, a, great, a weight too great for any of us to bear. Now, I want to pause for just a moment, and I just want to say this. I, I don't want to create any misunderstanding. I am not saying that ambition is wrong or all ambition is wrong. See, ambition can be a good thing. As human beings created in God's image, we were actually created to thrive. We, we were created to build, to create, to grow, to work, to hustle, to take on challenges. 
Even John the Baptist was ambitious. Do you think that John the Baptist could have done anything that he did if he wasn't somehow ambitious for the work that he was involved in? So I, I, I have no qualms. Let's talk about us for just a moment. I have no qualms about saying that we should be ambitious and have ambitious dreams for our church. We want to meet, reach more people with the good news of Jesus. We want to grow. We want to make a difference in our city. We, we're willing to sacrifice to plant our ministry center in a, in, a, in a neighborhood so that we can have a greater impact on people's lives, right? We want to do things well around here. We want to do things with excellence. We have ambitious goals as a church community, and that is not a bad thing. Ambition can be a good thing, but ambition can also be a bad thing. See, the Bible talks about this thing that's called selfish ambition. The phrase actually occurs six times in, in the New Testament, um, and it's never spoken of as positively. I mean, James says that whenever we have, wherever we find selfish ambition, he says, there you find disorder and every kind of evil practice. So, so nothing good comes from selfish ambition. So what is selfish ambition? Well, selfish ambition is ambition that's kind of turned inwards. It, it's, it's that Messiah complex that we talked about a little bit earlier on. That ambitious drive to have the universe revolve around you, you know, where you do all the right things for all the wrong reasons. And, and sometimes you do it because you're trying to scratch an itch of insecurity that you have inside of you, or, or you want to fill this emptiness, this need uh, for meaning and worth, and, and you look for it in all the wrong places, sometimes in broken ways, sometimes in shallow ways, right, that never truly satisfy and just kind of leave you searching for more. So, so that's selfish ambition. It's different than, than just ambition. There's actually a, there's actually a great example of, of somebody in the Bible who, uh, who wrestled and struggled with this selfish ambition. Uh, he's found in the book of Acts, and his name is Simon Magus, or Simon the Sorcerer. And he was, he was in fact, a sorcerer. He lived in Samaria, uh, a region in, uh, just outside of Judea. And, and he actually built up quite a following. A lot of people followed him because he could kind of perform these, these small miracles or, or pseudo-miracles. Uh, and they gave him a name. They called him the Great Power of God. The great power of God. And I thought about that. I said, well, that, that's an interesting name. I mean, I wonder if he, like, insisted when he got home that his wife called him the great power of God, right? Or that his kids did, right? I, I try to imagine me doing that at my house, um, what that would look like. Um, and he'd be like, hey, great power of God, can you pick up some milk on the way home? Hey, great power of God, can you put some money in my, in my bank account? Um, I kind of like the sound of it. Anyway, uh, no, not really. But that's what he's called. He's called the great power of God. So he was kind of a thing. He was a somebody. Well, as the story goes, one day Philip rolled into town, one of the followers of Jesus, an evangelist, and he began proclaiming the good news about Jesus. And people responded. And he was actually performing some miracles as well. So a lot of people turned and started following Jesus instead of following Simon. As a matter of fact, uh, they were baptized, and even Simon himself became a follower of Jesus, as the story goes. Well, a little while later, the apostles Peter and John rolled into town, and they discovered that these people had received Christ and had been baptized, but they'd not been filled with the Holy Spirit. So they began to pray over uh, these new believers in Christ, and they received the Holy Spirit. They received them with power and with fire, and, and their lives were radically changed. Now, meanwhile, Simon was kind of watching this. He was looking at all of this. And so he starts putting two and two together. He's realizing, okay, Jesus is increasing and Simon is decreasing, but there's this Holy Spirit thing going on. So I just want to read you the story from Acts chapter 8. Here's what happened. 
It says, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. And he said, give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. And Peter answered. Peter said, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. So, so what Simon seems to have been thinking is, you know, I think this Holy Spirit thing can really build my platform, right? So he, he figured, I'm going to invest some money towards this, get me some of that, and it's going to lead to more power for my own platform, my own, my own ministry. So it was really an ambitious thing to do, wasn't it? It was ambitious. However, it was the wrong kind of ambition. He had a selfish ambition. And Simon seemed to have been doing it for Simon's glory, but not for Christ's glory. Simon got it wrong, friends. But John got it right. Jesus must become greater. I must become less. But you see, here's the problem. I think that on our best days, most of us are kind of okay with that statement. He must increase. He must become greater. I think most of us are, are kind of okay with that. But it's that second part of the statement that we often get stuck on. We're not so okay with, I must become less. And this gets to the heart of the matter. Because this is the ultimate faith question for every follower of Jesus Christ, every believer in Christ, at every turning point in our faith journey, this is the ultimate question. Here's the question. Would you be okay with decreasing as long as Jesus is increasing? Would you be okay with decreasing as long as Jesus is increasing? <clears throat> Would you be okay with losing face? Would you be okay with being criticized? Would you be okay with having things fall apart in your life? Would you be okay uh, to lose? Would you be okay to be forgotten? Would you be okay with any or all of these things to happen if it means that Jesus somehow would be made famous through your life, that Jesus would get all of the glory, that Jesus would get all of the credit even though your life is diminishing? Would you be okay with that? That's the question. Because here's the thing. You see, it's, it's in the decrease of life. It's in the diminishing of life that you truly come face to face with your true self. The decreases we experience in life are actually a tremendous gift to us. They are like a mirror that we hold up to our souls to let us know where we're really at in our relationship. This mirror shows us if Jesus is truly enough for us. Now here's the question. How, how can a believer in Christ say that, you know, get by in life and say that he must increase and they must decrease? Well, the first answer to that is because Jesus decreased so that we might increase. Jesus left heaven. He left it all behind. He, he took on the form of a man and a servant. He gave up his life as a ransom for our sins. And, and he says that when we place our complete trust in him, we will rise. We will rise from death to life. We will experience the abundant life. We'll begin to walk through this life with purpose and joy and with hope. We will rise when we put our trust in him. Jesus decreased so that we might increase. And the reason why we can become less is because we are already famous through Jesus. Did you know that this morning? You are already famous through Jesus. The king of the universe knows you by name. The king of the universe has called you by name. He's called you out of darkness. He's called you from being a slave. And he's called you to be a son and a daughter in his household, in his family. 
You are already famous through Christ Jesus because of what Christ has done for you. So the question that, that we experience, and this is the question that I wrestled with in my three-day journey, my spiritual retreat is this. Is Jesus enough for you? Because when Jesus is enough, we can say, he must become greater, I must become less. Is Jesus enough? Um, <clears throat> one, of my, one of my other heroes, in the more the modern day, of faith is, is Jonathan Wesley. And uh, I've, I've, I'm actually going to school right now in a Wesleyan school. My background's not Wesleyan, but I'm, I'm at Asbury Theological Seminary in the States, and they're like all Wesley. Like there's Wesley statues everywhere, okay? Like they're uber Wesley. Everybody's quoting Wesley, and I'm like, I don't know Wesley very much. <laughs> As a result of being there, though, I, I've really come to appreciate Jonathan Wesley. He is one of my heroes. Uh, what God did through this short little guy uh, and, and in terms of transforming not only England, but also North America. He's a powerful preacher, revivalist. Uh, his brother was a songwriter. Uh, and he was the founder of the Methodist movement. Okay? So uh, Wesley had this thing in, that was called the um, covenant prayer. And he wrote this prayer. He kind of pulled themes. He stole like an artist and pulled themes from some of his uh, fellow workers. And he put this thing together. And he would use this covenant prayer um, to renew people's commitment to Christ. And, and they actually, it was a very powerful prayer because it, entire services, they, they created the covenant service around it where they'd bring all of their workers together and say, okay, we need together corporately to renew our relationship to Christ. And this prayer actually epitomizes um, what we're talking about today. And I'm going to read through the prayer. And as a response today, as we close, I'm going to ask you, and I want you to ask your soul, can I read through this prayer? Could I say this prayer to Christ? So I'm going to read it. I'm no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing or put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you. Exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Oh, let me have nothing. I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and your disposal. And now, glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine and I am yours. So be it. And so this morning as we close, I wondered if you could say that prayer. I wonder if that's a prayer that you could say from your heart. Are you, is your heart in a position and ready that you could say that prayer this morning in response to our Lord? And so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to invite us to just be silent for just a moment. And as you look at that prayer, I'm going to give you an opportunity to, to pray it to yourself and to our God. And then I'm going to close us in prayer this morning. Okay? So, oh, can we bring that back up? Yeah, okay. So take a moment.
Let's pray. Our Father, freely and wholeheartedly, we yield all things to your pleasure and your disposal. And our heart's desire today is that you would increase and that we would decrease. That you would become greater, that we would become less. And we declare today, Lord, from our hearts, that Jesus, you are enough for us. And we pray that that truth would penetrate us, that it would dig through the surface layers of our heart and would find its rest in a very deep place within us. And God, help us that we might pray this prayer with conviction from our hearts. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Well, thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope it's helped you in your spiritual journey and it's helped you draw closer to God. Let me tell you a little bit about us. Crosspoint gathers as one church on Sundays in Northeast Edmonton. And you can find out our location and more about us by visiting our website, thecrosspointchurch.ca. We also meet throughout the week throughout Edmonton in what we call home groups. These are smaller communities of learning, laughter, community, uh, transformation. We, we think that the journey of faith was never intended to be an independent exercise. It's, it's something that we do together. So please visit our website and find out how you can get connected to a home group near you. If you listen to our podcast regularly, why not make it shareable? You could like us on iTunes or share our podcast with other people. But more importantly, we hope you will get connected with other people and talk about what you've learned. Again, hey, thanks for listening. We pray you'll experience Christ's love in a very real and profound way this week.